So, brothers and sisters, um, we are looking at Psalm 145 again, and we're going to begin with verse 13 and read through verse 21. Uh, in our worship service thus far, we've actually covered the first three verses as a scripture reading, the call to worship, and then we've actually sung uh, a good portion of this, uh, this psalm itself in terms of our second and fourth hymn, this, this insert that we've been singing. So it's really, we've already have some fair context as we jump into verse 13 of Psalm 145. So let's begin there. Uh, David writes, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Then bracketed, the Lord is faithful in all his works, words, and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray for the illuminating measure of your spirit that we need and that we would say is most necessary for us to comprehend your word, uh, to really listen and to understand what David is saying here, and to appreciate the everlasting truths that are contained in your word, and also see this from the perspective of the fullness of, of all that has been revealed to us in Christ, to know that that which we read here of you, Heavenly Father, is likewise also true of our Lord and Redeemer Christ, knowing that all that you are, God, Christ is, that Christ is full of the deity, full of the Godhead dwelling in bodily form. So, even as we move through the exposition of this psalm today, the second half, our God, we make little distinction between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, except where those distinctions might be appropriate in terms of the respective work. What we do confess is that our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, our God has done all these things for the sake of those he loves. So encourage us in your word, teach us by your word, strengthen us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess the most famous quote by Socrates is this. The unexamined life is not worth living. As a pastor, I can tell you I've encountered any number of people for whom the examined life is not worth living. 
Uh, a nurse supervisor in my church many years ago sent a younger nurse on staff to see me. She was suicidal. Uh, she had been given pills to fight the depression. She had been in counseling from the medical profession and psychologists, but none of that was helping. And so she came to me and I listened to her story. Uh, I'll recite, I'll recite it to you briefly. Raised in a strict Catholic upbringing in New Jersey, an Italian family. Uh, when she was a teenager, she began to rebel against her parochial school upbringing. Uh, in her late teens, early 20s, she began dating an African-American gentleman uh, great uh, to greatly displease her father as much as it was her infatuation with him. Uh, she got pregnant. She had a child. He abandoned her. Uh, she raised the child for a year and a half as a single parent, unmarried, and then she gave him up for adoption. Uh, she went on over the next uh, number of years, perhaps a decade, as she pursued her education, to have a number of affairs, a number of relationships with men, uh, two abortions. Uh, finally got her, her medical nursing degree and began working in her profession. But here she was in her mid-30s. Uh, suicidal, um, faintly, fr frankly, had felt that her life was a waste, didn't want to live. So she came to me and she shared all this with me. And when she told me this sad story and that she really didn't want to live, this is what I said to her. I said, no one in her right mind would want to live a life like the one that you have just described. And she looked up at me with a bit of surprise because everyone else she talked to had been saying to her, oh, it's not that bad. You should still live. You should still want to live. I was the first person who had actually declared to her the truth. No one in her right mind would want to live the kind of life that you have described. And then I said to her, but you don't have to continue to live that kind of life. Over the next three sessions, I walked through the meaning of life, the true meaning of life, the meaning of life as God has designed it. I talked to her about Christ. I talked to her about guilt, true guilt, not Catholic guilt, but true guilt, I talked to her about forgiveness, not penance, but true forgiveness. I talked about what Christ had done for sinners such as we. I pointed out that there was a new direction in Christ, a new life, a new purpose in Christ. I pointed out to her that the gospel changes everything and that the gospel changes lives. That's most fundamental purpose is to actually change our life's purpose. It changes the meaning of life. Now, this story is actually one that has its parallels with the story that is in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Uh, in his conversation, Jesus exposed the truth to her about her own life, which she actually did know. She had a life that was not worth living. Five broken husband-like relationships. 
She was currently on her sixth. She was a social pariah, outcast. She had to come for water at noon when none of the other village women would be there. And in the course of the conversation, Christ directed what they were talking about to her most essential condition. And his message to this broken woman ultimately centered on this. He said to her, You worship what you do not know, but we, meaning the Jews, worship what we know, because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Or to restate this, as we have for the theme of this series, God has saved us through his Son for the sake of our worshiping him which is to say that our most essential purpose in this life and in the life to come is that of worshiping God, giving to God the glory that is due unto his name, that God has created us and then God has redeemed us to be conformed to the image of his son so that we, would actually live for this temporal and eternal purpose. In the words of the Shorter Catechism, we say it this way, our chief end, that is our chief purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Because the truth that Scripture reveals to us is this. There is no other way for human beings to find their meaning or their significance or their purpose in life except by that which we find in Christ, who reconciles us to the Father and who works in us by the Spirit, the desires and motivations to live for God, to live as one who worship Him. Now we need to contrast that with the great lie. Now, the great lie is that we human beings can find happiness or meaning or fulfillment in the created things of this world that we can find it in power or position or money or relationships or career, motherhood or intellectual pursuits or in other religious tradition. But God says we were all created for a far higher purpose, and that is for us to worship and to serve the living and true God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the theme of this series. That's why we have been looking at worship through the book of Psalms. Uh, we have been looking at the book of Psalms because it is, it, it is the book of Psalms that guide us in this direction. So this has been the theme of our series here. That's why we've been looking at worship through the lens of the book of Psalms to guide us in this direction because the book of Psalms have been, since the time of David, uh, the very worship book of the people of God. So we have the songs of worship and witness, of praise and confession, of supplication and instruction. Now, in our series so far, we have looked at praise and adoration. 
We have looked at confession of our sin in light of Christ. We have looked at our prayers of thanksgiving, motivated by our gratitude for God's grace. And now we come to this aspect of worship that we call supplication. Now, that word itself simply means to plead or to ask or to beg humbly from someone who's in power, with the power to help us or to grant us favor. Biblically, it refers to that kind of prayer in which we're humbly asking God for his help. And in the book of Psalms, supplication prayers are actually the prayers that are most frequent. And that enables us to make this very important observation about the connection between supplication prayers and worship. And and that connection is this. God is greatly honored, which means he's deeply worshipped and deeply glorified in our active dependence on him and his help. God is greatly honored honored in our active dependence upon him. Now, in the second half of Psalm 145, uh, what David describes can be translated into what I would call three inducements to our supplications, or three incentives, or motivations, or reasons. Uh, The first inducement with respect to this truth is that God is our king. Uh, The second would be that God is our caretaker, And the third is really a characteristic about us. Uh, What induces us to supplication is our, quote, God, I need you, unquote, conditions. So we have these three inducements, these three incentives to bring our prayers of supplication to God. But they're not really separate at all. They're so closely related to to each other. But by separating them a bit, we can see what they mean for our active dependence upon God. First then, God is our king. That's the first incentive or inducement we have to bring our supplications before. Now, the idea that God is king is the overarching theme of this psalm. It's it's God's kingship. It's God's total sovereignty. You know, David begins, I will extol you. My God and King, I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. Now, the reason why this is the most powerful inducement to prayer and why it speaks to our active dependence upon him is because God can do all his holy will. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And that's why God says in the book of Jeremiah, nothing is too difficult for me. That's why we can go to God. We can ask for his help. Because God always has the power to help us. God always has the power to cause all things to work together for the good of those who are his redeemed children. Just after the COVID lockdowns um, last year, uh, as they were actually into their second month, I got an invitation, an email invitation, from my old Promise Keepers group that I was part of 25 years ago. 
They're down in the Thousand Oaks, Agura, Calabasas area. They were asking if I wanted to join their Zoom prayer meeting in the near future. I wrote back to say that uh, I had a conflict, and then one of the members, Bill, wrote back to the group, but he specifically addressed his response to me. He said, Randy, great to hear from you. Uh, For the two of you in the group who may not know this, Randy was my first pastor, as well as pastoring George and Al and Eric and Andy. He said, I didn't understand this at the time, but what a group of godly men God had led me to. Since our topic is God's sovereignty, let me share a Randy story. So he goes on to describe it this way. He says, I'm a brand new Christian, really wet behind the ears. There's a church picnic at Peter Strauss Park. With my then seven-year-old daughter, Alex, in tow, I managed to lose my keys while walking from where I parked my car. As I started walking back to find my keys, Randy asked what I'm doing. So I tell him. He says, let's pray and ask God for his help. I make the lame response. No, Randy, I don't want to bother God with such a small, trivial matter. Randy just smiled, and then we prayed. I had walked the better part of a mile in losing them, but no set of keys were ever so easily found. Thanks for being part of such a sound teaching. Now, when Bill shared that story, I remembered it very distinctly. We were looking at a long stretch of grass between us and where the cars were parked. But I knew that God knew exactly where those keys were. I knew that nothing was too difficult for him. I knew that we could as a, as we could ask a sovereign God for his help. Bill started off toward the cars. He didn't walk more than 20 feet, and they are right in the path that he was walking. He found his keys. Now, Bill had thought that his lost keys were a small and trivial matter, too much so to bother God. But I knew this, and this is what Bill learned, and it's what I would want all of us to know. God is a great king. There's nothing that goes on in his kingdom that is too trivial for him to know or that's too small and bothersome. You and I are citizens of his kingdom. He bought our citizenship, death of the son. And therefore, if something matters to you, it matters to him. And you honor his kingship when you show your dependence upon him, even in these very small things. Now that naturally leads to the second inducement for prayer. The nature of God as caretaker of his own. David describes God the king, and of course we should be seeing, seeing Christ in all of this as well, as the one who cares for and takes care of all of his creation, especially his redeemed. Now, look at what God does in this way. Verse 14, 
He upholds those who fall. He raises up those who are bowed down. Verse 15. He gives food to those who need it. Verse 16. He opens his hand to satisfy the desires of every living thing. Verse 17. He's righteous and kind in his ways and toward his works. Verse 18. He's near to those who call upon him in truth. Verse 19. He fulfills the desire to those who fear him. He hears their cries and he saves them. Verse 20. He preserves all who love him. So here is second great inducement to bring our supplications to God. David paints this Holy Spirit-inspired picture of a God who cares for and takes care of his creation, and especially his redeemed, with infinite love and care. And think about how Jesus so strongly taught that point to his disciples, even more than once. In the Sermon on the Mount, that section in chapter 6, from verse 25 to 34, Jesus speaks about how the Father cares deeply and directly for his people, especially verse 25 to 26, where he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Or, in a similar way, uh, chapter 10, Verse 29 and 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. And of course, the greatest testimony and proof of God's love and care for us is the work of Christ. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now earlier, uh, I mentioned the Promise Keepers group. They began in 1995, 25 years. Last year marked their 25th anniversary, still meeting together. And I was part of that group for the first year and a half before I took a call and left for St. Louis. This group was committed to two things, supplication and accountability, to pray for each other, for each other's families, for each other's walk with God, and to hold each other accountable. Now, when two of my friends died of COVID this past January, One of them was Al, one of the founding members of that Promise Keepers group. In fact, he was the one who reached out to me last spring and invited me to join their Zoom meeting. So I had been Al's pastor, and he had been my friend. 
I watched his funeral service yesterday online, led by George, the group's facilitator, who had been one of my church elders, one of my friends. And I got to see and hear Al's two grown sons speak of their dad. Both told uh, of how their father was a very, very good dad, a, a loving father, a godly man. But what was so outstanding and conspicuous was this. Their dad was a man of prayer. He always prayed with them at night when they were growing up as children. He always prayed for them in all stages of life as they left home and went on through their 20s and now into their 30s. The the, the brothers testified about their father that he showed by what he said, he showed by the numerous emails that he wrote to them during those days when they had left home, that he lived a life of dependence upon God through prayer, that he was constantly praying for them as well. He, and he was always testifying to how much God loved and cared for him in and through Christ. Both sons were saying that their father's great legacy to them and to all of their family was that he lived a God-dependent life, a life in dependence upon Christ. We need to remember that it honors God. It brings God glory and praise when we see him as the one who takes care of us. And that really brings us to the third inducement with respect to our supplication prayers. And that's our own set of God, I need you conditions. Now this perspective shows up once again in these verses from 14 to 20. Because David describes us really as those who are falling and bowed down. Verse 15, we are those who depend upon God for our sustenance. Verse 16, we are those who have desires, and every living thing has desires, but it's only God who can meet them. Verse 18, we are those who need God, and therefore we call upon God. Verse 19, we are those who need to be saved and delivered. We are those who cry out to God in our need, and only God can save us. Verse 20, we are those who need to be preserved. Only God can do this. Now, if you are a psalm reader, you know that again and again, you find this theme, the theme that says, quote, God, I need you. That theme wouldn't be so prolific within the psalms. If our lives were free of trouble, often we wonder, why does life have to be so hard? And the reason is this. The power and pull of the world and the flesh and the devil are so strong that if we were not living in the midst of 
quote, God, I need you, unquote, conditions. We would be so vulnerable to falling suddenly into sin or drifting slowly away from Christ. And that's why James expresses that so very difficult truth in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, when he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, it's these trials of various kinds that move us to pray and to seek the help of Christ. It's the times of testing that make us live in dependence upon our God. Ten years ago this summer, the summer of 2011, was the darkest time in our lives. And I mean my life, Julie's life. Some of you will remember that summer because you were there to help. You were there to pray. Beginning in April of that year, right at the time of Easter, uh, Julie was hit with an almost intractable form of insomnia. It created an inability to go to sleep easily, naturally. And it took its toll over the next six weeks, physically and emotionally and mentally. And, and by the beginning of the summer, uh, Jules was living in a mental and emotional and spiritual darkness. And of course, you know, we, we did the responsible things. We went to the doctors, we checked on medications, so we did all of those things during that time. Nothing was helping. And we were in prayer, morning and night. And as the summer began, we were, frankly, in despair. To add further difficulty, that was also the time we moved from Oildale into Kern City. It was a very stressful time. We could never have done it without the help of the church. The church family so made all this happen. The help was so needed and I think the church family could see we needed much. During this time, there was one story about Christ that carried me, really carried both of us through. It's that story where Jesus is asleep on the boat. The disciples are in a great panic. The storm was threatening to capsize the boat. And they're crying out to Jesus, don't you care that we perish? And he's asleep in the boat. And he wakes up and he calms the storm and he says to them, oh, you of little faith. And this is what I learned. When life threatens death and we think Jesus is asleep because he's not answering our prayers, we are actually safe 
in his care. Because Jesus would never sleep if his disciples were truly in danger. It seemed all summer that my prayers were not being heard. But I kept praying. Because this was the greatest, God, I need you, (laughs) set of circumstances I ever faced. I learned to be dependent on God at a deeper level. That season made me dependent upon Christ like no other time in my life. And finally, the August, a single appointment with a new doctor and a new set of prescriptions. And in a matter of two weeks, the darkness began to lift. That was the worst summer of my life. It was the worst summer of Julie's life. But it was the closest we had ever walked with Christ thus far. It was the time of deepest dependence. It drove us to constantly pray and depend upon God. Because the truth is, the truth is, when life isn't hard, we often do not... Let me say this clearly. Here's the truth. When life isn't hard, we often don't live in dependence upon God. But our prayers of supplication are, in fact, truly prayers that show our dependence upon God. Now, this morning, then, three inducements to prayer and dependence upon God. He's our king. He's our caretaker. And he grants us deep trials that present to us the God-I-need-you conditions that keep prompting us to pray. Because there's this deep connection between prayers of supplication and worship. God is greatly honored in our active dependence upon him and his help. At Al's service yesterday, my friend George told one more story about Al. Before Al became a Christian, he had gone through, during his 20s, two marriages, and he had a severe drinking problem. But George had only known Al since he had become a Christian. And George, like all of us, found Al to be a very funny guy and a very happy guy. So one time George said to Al something like this, and he said it jokingly. He said, Al, when people become Christians, they often stop being so much fun to be with. You must have been incredibly fun to be with before you became a believer. And Al responded in all seriousness, no, George, my life was very dark, very broken before Christ 
saved me. My life brought no one fun at all. And that is why I can never thank Christ enough for saving me and giving me the life and the purpose that he's given to me. I pray all of us will know and understand this. That what we have in Christ is a purpose that is for now and for all eternity. And to know that there's nothing as satisfying as living in dependence upon Christ our Savior. Amen. Our God and Father, we do ask and pray that you would work in us the sense of what it means to walk with Christ and to depend upon Christ and to live for Christ and to be strengthened by Him. May you keep us fixed on Christ and to run that race looking to Him for everything. In His name we pray. Amen.